passages, Ephesians chapter 1 and Acts chapter 13. We have been covering the attributes of God, and we come this evening to the foreknowledge of God. This can be a very difficult subject because it will affect the way that you see your salvation or the salvation of others. It will also be a determining factor on how you actually view God in your life. For example, and I want to start with these two words. I would recommend that you write them down. The first one is monergism. Monergism. It's a word spelled M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. There's a great website called monergism.org. And there are a number of very meaty, to use that word, meaty uh, articles. There are sermons that are there. There are videos that you can watch from men across a wide spectrum who address the difference between monergism and synergism. Now, for the record, I believe and hold to the doctrine of monergism, not synergism. Synergism is spelled S-Y-N, and I'm going to give you a, a difference between the two, S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. Now, monergism simply means it comes from a compound or a double Greek word, and it simply means to work alone. Whereas synergism comes from a compound Greek word meaning to work together. So what is the difference between these two views of salvation or doctrine? When we were in Liberia, and it's pretty much the same no matter where you go, the difference is here in America. Synergism, for example, is, uh, is, is very much prevalent even here in America, but most people don't recognize it. Synergism basically is the melding of two belief systems in order to be able to accommodate your worldview. We also have a word um, called syncretism. Has anybody heard the word syncretism? Syncretism is the merging of two religious beliefs. For example, when we were there, when we were in Liberia, you would have those who would be who would come to church on Sunday and they might be singing praises to God. They'd be raising their hands. They'd be having a good time. But then on Monday, they'd be with the witch doctor in the, in, in the wilderness or out in the jungle area because they felt that God was not strong enough, but just to hedge their bets, they would go and spend time being able to get potent herbal remedies from the witch doctor and he would blow smoke on them and he would actually try to produce some kind of healing. This is called syncretism. In other words, we are merging the tribal belief system and Christianity, if you will, and we're merging the two together. So when we're talking about in regards to salvation, here's the main difference. And here's here, if you will, is um, the biblical definition of monergism. It is this, that God alone affects our salvation. God alone. Synergism is the view that God works together with us in effecting salvation. Now, it's important to understand from the perspective of foreknowledge, what exactly does this mean? 
You see, if we believe that election is unconditional, then you will believe or you will lean towards this monergistic mono, meaning one or solely alone, you will fall under this perspective in regards to salvation, that it is all of God. However, if you believe that election is based on God's foreknowledge of who you are, and that you would come to believe in him, therefore God has to act based on your faith, not his choice. This would be synergism. So for example, we talk about free will. We have talked about this multiple times in the past, and I want to just kind of summarize this, if you will. The bottom line is this, man does not have a free will. Everybody get that? Man does not have free will. We believe that man has a free will to be able to choose, or there are many who believe, I should say, that man has a free will to be able to choose God without any undue influence on his life. In other words, we get up one day, it's a beautiful day, there's no wind in Wyoming. Hey, this would be a wonderful day to get saved, so therefore I'm going to work up enough faith and I'm going to determine by myself that I want to come to salvation. Not biblical. We have to understand that the reason that we come to salvation is because God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Now, again, we go back to free will. Does man have a will? Does man have a responsibility and a choice? Absolutely. I mean, if you go out here, for example, and you're driving down the road, and we've used similar examples in the past, but if you're driving down the road and you come up to a T-junction, you have a will to choose. You can go left or you can go right. Yes, everybody agree? But when it comes to choosing God, apart from the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling or coming upon your life to draw you to salvation, you don't have the ability to be able to choose God on your own because the scripture is clear in the book of Romans that we are slaves to sin. Every part of us. There's no part that has been left out. And this actually takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the only time that man ever had an actual free will to be able to choose to serve or follow God was Adam and Eve in the garden. And they decided at some point that they were going to, and we learned about this, and, and, and Brother Al brought it up uh, uh, in regards to the flood. Every sin just about that you can name ultimately comes down to pride and rebellion. Satan fell. He fell from heaven. Why? Because he was lifted up in his heart and he decides that he's going to rebel against God. Let's use a few examples. If your children or your grandchildren, if they decide they want a cookie and you tell them, no, don't get a cookie out of the cookie jar, and they decide that they are going to get a cookie, what ultimately is that? What's that? Well, it is sin, but... It's rebellion, right? It's rebellion against the law that you have set down that you cannot have that cookie. You cannot have that cookie until after dinner or whatever it may be, when, whatever the criteria is that you have set for what they need to do in order to be able to have that cookie. Now, if that child breaks that, no matter what it is, if, for example, you tell the child, don't touch the stove, the stove is hot. They touch the stove. Why are they touching the stove? Because ultimately, pride and rebellion. 
rebellion against your laws because they think they know better, which actually is pride. And that's the way it is within our lives as well. We have pride. We get pride against the Most High God. God establishes his law. We have 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament, just in the book of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we say, no, I I think I know better than God. Is it any wonder that in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, we find these six things does the Lord hate? And one of those is pride. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride is what drives mankind to do what they do because they think, for example, if somebody decides he's going to rob a bank, is there pride that is involved? Absolutely, because he thinks he won't get caught. He thinks he's better than the security system that is in place. And it's no different whether it's a little person or whether it's an older person. The problem is we as human beings don't like to hear the word no. We want our way. Our children, that's that's what we have to keep teaching them over and over and over. No means no, don't ask again. Now again, as they get older, for example, Clayton. How old's Clayton? Four? Five. He's five years old. And if you tell him he's over at your house and he asks for something and you know in your mind that it's not good for him and you tell him, no, you can't have that or no, you can't do that, there's nothing that a five-year-old is bringing to the conversation that's probably going to change your mind. Go ahead. Yep. Well, ultimately, we're again, we're talking about pride, pride of heart, because a, a, a child doesn't understand. You have to instruct them as to why you would say yes or instruct them as to why you would say no. But when they're five years old, they just don't like the word no. I mean, it's one of the first words that a child actually learns. Now, you can take a, a one who is a little bit older, example, right here. And so Clayton says, hey, I want to go out for an ice cream. You know you haven't had dinner yet. And so you say, no, no ice cream right now. There's no debating that. You just know that's your decision. Now, she's a little bit older. And she understands that we haven't eaten dinner yet. But she could ask and say, well, could we go after Now, we're having a little bit of a discussion, right? We're having a dialogue back and forth to be able to understand. But there may be times when you have to say no because you know something that she doesn't. Maybe you've already gone to the store and bought a whole bunch of ice cream to be able to make root beer floats. And she doesn't know that yet, okay? So at the same time, because she is a child, she's still responsible to be able to obey, And it's not really any different when it comes to us dealing with our Heavenly Father. God knows what is best for us, for you and I, in every aspect of our life. And so when we come to the matter of salvation, we're dealing with the same thing. We're either saying, God, you can take the parts of me that I like. We'll keep those. The parts that you want to get rid of, you get rid of those, and we'll call it good. I mean, we see that 
everywhere we go, no matter where you go in the world, you're going to find that kind of attitude on the foreign mission field and even here in America. Now, we do not work together with God to be able to inherit our salvation. Let's look at these two verses. Acts chapter 13, firstly. And he is speaking here. This is when Paul and Barnabas are going out. And let's look starting at verse 44. Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, rebellion, right? Because God has already established that the gospel in four, five different places, in all four gospels, as well as the book of Acts, he has already established that the gospel is going to go to who? To the Gentiles? I mean, to everybody. To everybody. Yeah. So, who, the, the disciples were actually tasked with going where? Right, but but originally the Great Commission it, it was to go to who or to go to what places? All the world. Mark chapter sixteen says that we were to preach the gospel to every creature. So it wasn't just in every place, but it's also to every person who is in that place. Sadly, we have not done a good job of that as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this case, the Jews are filled with jealousy. They begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, what is it that he is talking about? For that, you would have to go back, and Paul has given them a little bit of an understanding when he says, and he actually goes back to the Psalms, and he says in verse 33, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, you will not let your holy one see corruption. This is the message that he's talking about. He is going and he is discoursing in the synagogues every Saturday. He goes to them and he is telling them the same three things. Number one, he is warning them of their sin. He is warning them of righteousness and warning them of or telling them that they must have righteousness. And then thirdly, he is reminding them that there is a judgment that is coming. This is always the gospel message. You have to get somebody, you will never see somebody come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not understand that they are a sinner. Now you can go here, we can knock on doors here, we can go to England, same thing we found there. You could knock on doors there and you could ask them, are you a good person? Oh, yes. Well, what is your standard? Well, I'm not as bad as old Mrs. So-and-so that lives two doors down. What do we have? Pride. Pride that actually brings destruction. So he continues, and Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Who's he talking to here? To the Jews. Since you thrust it aside, thrust what aside? The gospel. And judge yourselves. What does that next word in your Bible say? Unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews are up in arms. They're livid. 
But what do the Gentiles do? When the Gentiles heard this, now the construct here is that they are actually there. They are in the crowd with the Jews. This is not a separate group of people. They are together. So the Jews on one hand, they are railing against Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are speaking boldly. They are saying, this is what the word of God says. By the way, those of you who don't like this, you have deemed yourself unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, we're going to go to this other group of people. Now, how do you think that made the Jews feel? I mean, after all, who were the scriptures given to? The Jews. Who were the, who were the disciples given to? The Jews. Who were the prophets in the Old Testament given to? The Jews. The commands of God were given to the Jews. Who were God's chosen people? The Jews. So when they hear this, they began to what? What does your Bible say? They rejoiced. They glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were decided to use their own free will to choose eternal life got to believe. Does it say that? Doesn't say that, does it? It says those who were appointed to eternal life Believe. Now, here's the question. How do we know who's appointed? It's not our responsibility, is it? We simply proclaim the gospel message, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came into the world to save sinners. And if you will simply come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 10, you will be saved. That's the bottom line. But too often we in theological constructs and theological even schools of thought we get so wrapped up on trying to determine who is and who isn't selected or elected unto salvation that's not our that's not within our wheelhouse that is given only to god how do you know that you are i believe it was charles spurgeon he used to say it on a regular basis you may ask yourself how do i know that i am chosen from before the foundations of the world come to the foot of the cross and plead to god for mercy and he will in no wise turn you away that's the joy that is the wonder that comes from knowing a god who saves from one end of the social spectrum to another from one tribal people to another tribal people, from a person who owns nothing but a, maybe a loincloth down in the jungles of Africa to somebody who is a king in a palace like Nebuchadnezzar. This is who God is. He ordains to salvation. Now go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to read verse 4 and verse 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. You know, we sing hymns like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, or, or Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. It truly is that. It is grace that allows us to even come to salvation. 
You see, the reality is this, you and I on our own, left on our own, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit coming and, 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 and impressing upon us our need of a Savior and bringing us to repentance, you and I don't need God in any way to go to hell because we are going on our own. Because everything within us screams, and we go back to those same two words, in pride and rebellion against the Most High God. We think we can do it. You can tell somebody, God's simple plan of salvation is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will bring you to confess your sins. And people will scratch their head and say, well, I wonder what I got to do. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter whether it's here or wherever it is that mom and dad have served or whether wherever you have gone. It, you can go to any place in the world and people will tell you the exact same thing. But God is the one that is choosing. This is the bottom line or the essence, if you will, of this truth. God is in the business of actually saving people, not merely making them savable. You understand? God is in the business of actually saving people, not merely making them savable. Uh, what if we looked at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and we wondered, well, I wonder if I could be saved. I mean, after all, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross and, and he made all of these things possible. But, you know, none of us really know how we can get saved. And then get to heaven and find out that we were all doing it wrong. And so, therefore, we all get sent to hell. Is that God's fault? Nope. It's not God's fault at all. So when God saves us, he sets his love upon us. He doesn't just make it possible for you to be saved, Brother Corey. He says, I set my love upon you. I have loved you from an, with an everlasting love, and you will be one of my children. Sadly, some people believe that God will only act in regards to our responses to him. So therefore, it makes the creator subject to the creator or to the created being. In other words, there are many who will say that God will come and he will save you, but you have to do X, Y, Z. And therefore, God will then choose you. No. No. Because what that does is that leads then to an understanding of Scripture that says that we have to do something. And after a while, we have to ask ourselves, well, how much is good enough? What, what, what happens if, if Brother Galen does more good works than, say, Brother Jeff does? Number one, how does Brother Galen even know that he's done enough? And if he's not sure that he's done enough, Brother Jeff sure doesn't know that he's done enough. Why do you think all of the cults demand what they do from their followers? You can follow the, the, the Roman Catholic system, for example. Some of you were raised Roman Catholic. You go and you have to go every week. You have to be able to partake of the sacrament. You have to swallow the actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you might potentially have no salvation and might have to go to hell for all of eternity to atone for your own sins. You have to follow all of these rules. And if you do, 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 and don't, 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 then you might have a chance. And yet we just sung the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
there is not one of us here. There is not one person in the entire world. You can go back to Charles Spurgeon. You go to Benjamin Keach back in the 1600s. You can go to the 1500s and talk about John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress. You can go all the way back to the start of the church. You can go back farther than that, all the way to Adam and Eve. And there will not be one person who will be able to stand before God and say, I contributed to my salvation. Not one thing. The only thing that we actually bring to salvation is the fact that we are, Ephesians chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sins. I'd like to lay a misconception about the funeral industry to bed here, just in case you were wondering. This is a little aside. You cannot manipulate a body and make them actually sit up or do anything like that when they're laying in a funeral home. That, that's the stuff of movies, okay? Trust me, I picked up enough bodies. If one of them ever did that, I would have just, I mean, you would see nothing but smoke from me. Now, when that person is laying on the table and we are preparing the body and we are embalming them and then we are putting their makeup on and, and doing all of that stuff that we are preparing them for the funeral, you know, I have never had one of them look up at me and say, you know, I really don't like that shade. You know, I would prefer you put me in jeans instead of that suit that doesn't have any pockets in it. Not one of them have ever said that to me. Why? Very simple. Because they're dead. Now, for us to understand salvation, we mentioned this this morning, Matthew chapter 25, that there are going to be some sitting in churches just like ours and on that day, when they stand before God, they're going to say, Lord, didn't we do all of these things? And he's going to say, I never knew you. What he is saying to them is you were born dead in trespasses and sins. You lived dead in trespasses and sins, and you died dead in trespasses and sins. And you know what the problem is? There are a lot of people who are conflating these two terms here. They're instead of looking to God and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all, that there was absolutely nothing I can do to myself for my salvation with, Lord, these are all the things I can do for you. So therefore, you have to accept me. Yep, yep.
that you are on the bottom of the ocean floor. You are dead. There's no way to grab a life saver. There's no way to grab a lifeline who's dead. It isn't until Jesus reaches down from that boat all the way down to that bottom of the ocean floor yep. and pick you up and save you. He brings you back to life. He regenerates you. He brings you back to life. And he's the one doing all the work, pulling you into the boat. And you're alive. Yeah. And you are there. Thank you, him, for saving you. And he does it all. He paid it all. So that you are, you're laying on the ocean floor. And, and to, to make it even, absolutely. And you know, to make it even further, not only does he lift us up, but he doesn't just polish off the old man. He actually removes that old man completely. He actually puts a new spirit within us so that we now, everything about us is desiring to follow God. It's desiring not to live in a way that is prideful and rebellious anymore. And so when he lifts us up, as Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, he may, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. So when you take all of scripture, you can't just take whatever proof text is what it's called. You can't take a verse and say, well, yeah, I like that verse. And so I'll follow that one or I'll believe that one, but I don't want to believe the other ones. And when you look at all of them, we realize you're right. I didn't have a choice. You're right. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. You're right. If if God had left me to my own devices, I would probably be in hell today. And then God in his mercy, God in his grace, God in his providence sets his love upon us. That to me is why we sing the hymns of Zion that we do. I don't want some pathetic little 7-Eleven songs that are up on the screen that a lot of churches sing that mean absolutely nothing. I want songs that are great theology. I want to be able to sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning will we rise and sing praises unto you. Why? Because we have come to the point where we recognize what he did for me and what he can do for you. He chose us. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 16. In fact, I would like somebody to read that. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Read that again. Who does the acting? God does. Now, I know that a lot of us maybe have been taught, well, if you just come to the front and shake the preacher's hand and, 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 and you know, say this little sinner's prayer, that that's going to save you. The repeating of a prayer has never saved anybody. Coming down and shaking it, you can join every church in Wyoming, you can join every church in America, and you're still going to die and go to hell apart from Jesus Christ. Listen to what the London, by the way, if you want a copy, there are free copies right out front. This is a great little booklet that gives a much fuller 
uh, Confession of Faith. This was actually written by uh, the elders and brethren of many congregations of Christians who were baptized upon profession of their faith in London and the country. This has been a staple now in many Reformed-type churches uh, down through the years, and it deals with 32 different points of doctrine. Great little book. Listen to what it says about God's decree, which we're talking about foreknowledge here. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose, that means it cannot be changed, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto eternal, unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. Now, what that simply means is this. If you go back, we before or God before the foundation of the world, why? Simply for his good pleasure, simply because of his good will. He chose to love us. That's it. I mean, how do we know otherwise why one person is chosen over another? Is it because we're white Americans? No. Is it because we're from a better tribe than somebody else? No, simply because of his goodwill, out of his free grace. This is why we talked and we mentioned it about the, the, the amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There are no comparisons before God when it comes to you and any other being. That's why we sing this hymn. That saved a wretch like me. I'm not, you can sing that and it has been written in multiple languages around the world. And there are Christians who sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, in congregations around the world in their own language. You know, they're not comparing themselves to you. They're simply thankful for the grace of God that he saved them. This is the, what we call, and this is in a nutshell, what we would call the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of salvation. We're going to look at this much more in depth later on, Lord willing. But this is the way that this comes together. First of all, all people are born in sin, and because of their total depravity, they will always reject God. Always. Whether we like it or not. So because of this, God must first atone for the sins of those whom he came to redeem. This grace and salvation must then be applied to the elect, and thus the Holy Spirit applies the effects of salvation to the elect by regenerating their spirits and drawing them into salvation. Finally, those whom God has saved, he will preserve to the end. From beginning to end, salvation in all of its aspects is a work of God and God alone. That is monergism. You know, that doesn't make somebody proud. That should make you humble before God that he would do such a thing for anybody. You know, we have used this illustration in the past, for example, in regards to 911. I can remember where I was on 9-11-2001. I could probably draw footprints 
in my mind on the ground in the house where we were at at the time at Violet's parents' house. And I can tell you exactly where I was in that house on where I was, where I stood on the floor when that happened. We got the news turned on. The problem is when we come to salvation, there are a lot of times that we we almost look at it as a 9-11 event. We think that because there were 2,900 and something people that died, that somehow God was at fault in that situation. You know what the reality is? There were 50,000 people on any given day that worked in each one of those towers. Do you know what we should be asking instead of, God, why did you let so many people die? God, why were you so gracious that 100,000 people didn't die on September the 11th? And when you come to salvation with that 9-11 type mentality that we have as Christians, whereby we want to question God and we say, well, God, why did you give the gospel to us instead of to Africa? Why did you give the gospel to us instead of those 99% Japanese who were without Christ and who were following Shinto Buddhism? What we should be doing is, God, why were you so gracious for us in America to be able to hear the gospel when so many others have rejected the gospel? You see what that does, Brother Corey? It takes it completely out of my hands. It puts it squarely in the hands of the Almighty God. We should be thankful. Not only have we been blessed with all of the treasures and all of the blessings that we have here in America, but we have also been granted. I mean, if you think about the entire world, 8 billion people in the world, we don't even make up 10% of the entire world's population here in America. But look how much God has given us. There are countries in the world you can go to today that still can't get Christian radio, that still don't have Christian television. And if you're a pastor or a minister of the gospel, you can stand up and preach today and you may spend the rest of your life in a gulag or in a prison cell until you die and never get to see your family again. Why? We don't have a right to question God. We simply have the responsibility to say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done in my heart. Help me to be thankful enough. And that's really what comes back as our conclusion to the pride and rebellion against God. What is the command, the great commission that we've been given? Again, go into all of Cheyenne. No, it says all the world. And the reason we don't go into all of the world is because we think that, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will. But yet there are people who have never heard. There are still over 3,000 languages in the world today that don't even have one verse of God's word in their language. Some two-thirds of the world's population have never even heard of Jesus Christ today. And yet here we are, we get to enjoy, we get the privilege and the joy of being able to hear it every single week, every single day. We've got multiple Bibles laying around. I mean, if we took every one of the Bibles that we have on our pews here, if we could translate them into North Korean or to Chinese, that would probably cover 
I mean, we've probably got, I don't know, 75 copies out here. That would probably go to 75 different congregations in a country like China or Korea, North Korea. And yet we've got them here and we can't even be bothered to pick them up sometimes. Yet God in his mercy and his grace loved me, loves you. That should fill your heart with wonder. You should go out of here just almost being Pentecostal. <laughs> Nothing wrong with raising our hands and thanking God and giving praise to him. I mean, after all, that's what the Psalms say. Give praise to the Lord. The word is actually yadah, to lift up holy hands unto the Lord. May you and I lift up holy hands unto the Lord this week, each and every day, remembering what he has been so gracious to us about. Amen. Any questions or thoughts? Yes. The order salutis. Well, it, as far as what part, you mean the Latin words? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, one passage among many, but yes, Romans chapter eight shows the order of salvation. In other words, how that simply means ordo salutis is the order of salvation. How does it come to us as an individual? But we are going to be looking at that. Yes. Such a joy to have read where he was part of all along. Yep. And I thought I was doing it until I learned to pray that um, he's the one who chose me to do it. And all of us, before the foundation of the world, you know, he had his son together determine this is what we're going to do. Yep. And he made himself a missionary, but I don't know how it would work. But sure. I think at this time, I think three of them, it's a Trinitarian work. Yep. Just, just as we see in creation of the earth, the Trinity was involved. The Trinity chose. They, there was no counsel among the sons of men. They did it on their own. And salvation was no different. And I think that's why we see passages like Philippians 2. God gives Jesus a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, we will bow. 
we will proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That, that's why I love the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a scary book to me anymore. Because, I mean, every time you turn around, it's either the angels singing or the four and 20 elders or the entire world or whoever it may be. I mean, even creation itself is singing glory to the Lamb. How much more should we be doing it here ourselves? Yeah. Brother Doug. I think so many people You know, it, it's almost like, and I, I tell the girls this, and all kids are like this. They grow up, they don't like the rules. They think, oh man, there's just so many rules. If I just get out on my own, there won't be any rules anymore. And then you get the DMV motor guide and it's pages of rules that you have to remember. But you know, most of us, when I got on the car yesterday to go pick them up from work, I didn't think about the motor guide one time. I didn't think about any of the rules. I didn't think about what I had to learn to be able to get my license because I had the freedom here in this country to simply get in the car, push the button to start the car and to drive to get them. That's what salvation is. When God saves us, we are now free to love him, to rejoice in him, to worship him, to fellowship with one another. And we don't think about all the rules that we broke anymore because that's gone. That condemnation is no longer there. Oh, sure. They'll hold it over your head. Yeah. Done. Yep. Yep. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that you have set that love upon us from eternity past. There are many things that, as Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong unto the Lord. And I believe that we will worship you as we even sing in the hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years. When we've been there a million years, we still won't fully understand. I believe that we will to a degree, but why you would set your love upon us is just beyond us. So help us to be thankful this evening as we go from here, remembering the wonder of who you are, where we ha you have brought us from, what you have rescued us out of, and the fact that you have saved us from the wrath of the Almighty God. Thank you for your word this evening and what we have been able to learn. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.